Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey, thank you. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. If you're joining us over uh, online, we're really thankful that you're here as well. Um, as Lisa mentioned at the top, you know, Father's Day is one of those days that can be a double-edged sword. Um, for some people, there's uh, a lot of um, excitement, and then other people, there's a, a sense of grief or mourning or loss. And so um, as a church community, uh, the scriptures teach us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, and we do that uh, today. So I get the chance to open the scriptures with you. And I don't know if we planned this. I can't remember if we were smart enough to plan talking about a father's pursuit of Jesus on Father's Day. I've got to be honest with you. I don't think we're that smart. I don't think we planned it intentionally. But praise be to God, on Father's Day, we are talking about a dad who's seeking Jesus on behalf of his son. And I just want to say, if this isn't a Father's day e message enough for you and you have issues with that, you can email your complaints to Jeremy Johnson at Johnson. <laughs> at EFCC.org, and he will delete those for me. So, you know, we do want to celebrate uh, fathers today, but whenever we gather, we worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. It was 1678 when John Bunyan published his now famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. It was six years after he wrote it that it actually went into publication. He wrote it from a jail cell. He was actually in jail because he was illegally preaching the gospel. He was preaching in a way that wasn't sanctioned by the church at the time. And so he was thrown in prison. And while he was in prison, he wrote this now prolific work. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress was so famous because it sort of bridged genres. It was an extended, is an extended allegory, but many people would consider this book the very first novel ever written. For 200 years, Pilgrim's Progress was the second most popular book in the world. Any guesses what the most popular was? The Bible. You're in church. It's the right answer. It's the right... Yeah, only second, second only to the King James Bible. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said he read Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress over 100 times. That's how popular this book was. And I started to sort of wonder why in the world was, was this book so popular? If you've read it, it's, it's about a man named, named Christian. <laughs> Subtle, I know, um, but it's an <laughs> allegory about his spiritual journey. He leaves the city of destruction he encounters all sorts of people along the way who try to detract him from his final destination, the celestial city. And I think in so many ways, the, the book captured the imagination of people, captured the heart of people, because we can relate to the idea that life is a journey, can't we? That, that faith is a journey. In fact, in fact, Abram, our, our, our father of faith, listen to the way his journey with God started. The Lord said to Abram, go, like leave your country, your kindred, your father's house and the land and go to the land that I will show you. How's that for specific? Leave everything you know, leave your family, leave your plot of land, leave everything that you're about to inherit and go. Great God, go where? Go to a place that I 
will show you. And the scriptures say, so, so Abram went. This launched him out into a journey, a journey that would shape the rest of his life and his relationship with God. Abram is considered the father of faith because of this moment. Because of the moment he says, I'm willing to leave, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to step into the unknown to go to the place that you will show me, God. I don't know about you, but I'm down for a journey when I know the destination. Can I get an amen? I'm down for a journey when I get to decide the destination. When I can plug the coordinates into my Apple Maps, hit go, avoid traffic, all that, I'm game. Especially when I'm interested in where we're going and when I want to get there. If I'm on a backpacking trail, if I have a map or a GPS and a destination in mind, I'm game. But go to a land I will show you? That feels risky. That, that feels a bit reckless. That feels a bit like life, doesn't it? It feels scary. It feels like, like, like faith often feels. And I started to think this week, maybe it's not so much that the journey led Abram to a place of faith. Maybe the journey itself is a picture of what it means to have faith. And see, I think we've diminished the biblical truth of faith and we've diminished it and we've minimized it into a decision. A decision that we make at a certain point in time. I now at this point in time have faith in Jesus. And many times that's the way we talk about faith, a decision we made way back when. And I wanna say this to you. Faith is always a decision, but it's also always so much more than a decision. It's never less than a decision, but it's always more. It's an ongoing, dynamic relationship with God where we grow to trust him more and more each day or we grow to resist his overtures of love in our life. And what we're gonna see as we study this passage of scripture is that faith is more than a one-time decision. It's a journey of deepening trust in Jesus. A journey of deepening trust in Jesus. It's, it's ever-evolving. It's ever-changing. It's ever-growing. Or maybe shrinking, but faith is something that's alive, that's dynamic. It is not static, it is not dead, and it is more than just a one-time decision. I love the way that author Robert Mulholland put it. He said, when spirituality is viewed as a journey, the way to spiritual wholeness is seen to lie in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path whose grace deepens our detour, redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from crippling bondages of the prior journey and whose transforming presence meets us at each turn in the road. That's a good word, isn't it? I love this phrase, increasingly faithful response to the one. That's what it means to have an alive, vibrant, and growing faith. Not just I made this decision, but I'm increasing in my faithful response to the one who calls me his beloved. And in the passage of scripture we're going to look at today, the word faith or belief or trust is said three times. And each time, you'll notice this, each time it's a bit different. It's a bit nuanced. And there's there's growth and there's trajectory that happens in this text. 
And I think as we, can, as we read it, we might get the idea that faith looks like a journey that's just simply up and to the right. Like we start in one place and this, we just consistently grow over time up and to the right. And how many of you know that's not exactly the way that it works? Can I get an amen? That I think faith, we think it looks like the top picture here, right? That it's sort of an up and to the right movement, but, but sometimes faith looks a little bit more chaotic. Can I get an amen? Faith looks a little bit more like a journey where God shows us where to go. And sometimes we go, I'm with you. And sometimes we go, I'm not so sure. Sometimes we go, I'm in, I'm all in. And sometimes we sort of shrink back in fear. Can anybody relate to the bottom picture? I can. And I just want you to have it in mind, just in case this passage in John chapter 4 makes it seem a bit too simplistic. We know that it's more complicated. We know that there's a lot that goes into it, but we also know that God can speak a word and do something in our soul. Amen? If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4. Last week, we met a woman at a well who encountered Jesus and her life was changed. She ran back into town, told everybody who would give her an ear about this man who told her everything that she'd ever done. And then she brought those people back to come and see Jesus and they were transformed also. Jesus stayed in that town for two days and then it says that he left and he went back or up to Galilee where his hometown was. And that's where we pick up the story starting in verse 46. Are you there? Wonderful, here we go. It says, so he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So John's laying down some geography for us, and it's really important for us to try to capture where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. He goes first to a place called Cana. It's in the region of Galilee. And this is the place, John tells us, just in case we missed it, he turned water into wine. And it's as though Jesus is going back to this place where he planted the seeds of faith to start to cultivate the harvest of faith that was coming. And and John also tells us that there's a man who lived in Capernaum. And you go, well, where was Capernaum in relation to Cana? I'm so glad you asked that. It was about a 25-mile journey from Capernaum to Cana. So this official, who probably worked in Herod Antipas's court, who had access to all the best health care that money could provide, who at sort of the snap of a finger could get anything that money could buy, is desperate. And so he goes on this journey to meet Jesus. His son is sick. He's growing more and more sick by the day. He's in this desperate situation. How many of you know that eventually death comes for every single one of us? Sickness comes for every single one of us. Sorrow comes for every single one of us. In so many ways, it's the great equalizer. Regardless of how much power you have or how much money you have in your bank account, sorrow will eventually come. And so we see this man that has everything, and yet his son is sick. And as a dad, he paints a picture of what every good father would do when their son or daughter is sick. Anything. Anything it takes to get your son well. 
So when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So a 25 mile journey, we're not exactly sure how he got there, if he walked, if he went on horseback, not sure. 1300 feet in elevation. So he's going up from Capernaum to Cana. It's not an easy journey, but it's a journey that he's going on because he has this conviction he needs to get face to face with Jesus. And as we talk about the journey of faith, I just want to acknowledge that desperation is a great beginning point for the journey of faith. It's the very thing that causes this guy to go, I've got to get face to face with Jesus. I've got, I've got to seek him out. In fact, I'd say it like this today. Desperation is a great place to meet Jesus, but it's a terrible place to leave him. And some of you, you may be in that spot today where you're just in the spot of desperation. You've been doing your best to trust Jesus and to walk with him. And you're wondering, is this the time where I just tap out and try to do it on my own? And I just want to speak a word over you. That desperation is a great thing to drive you to his feet. It's a terrible reason to leave him. It's a terrible reason to leave him. So here's my question though. This, this official is his, faith, is his faith genuine? Yeah, I think so. Is his faith strong? I, th- I think it is. It's strong enough to, to, to walk 25 miles to try to get to the feet of Jesus. Is his faith, and, and don't answer this out loud, is his faith what Jesus is looking for? That's a little bit of a different question. Because listen to the way that Jesus responds to this man who's just walked 25 miles to get face to face with him, to beg him to come and to heal his son. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's an interesting phrase. And in most of the commentaries that I read in studying this text, what what they said was this is a bit of a rebuke to this man. As if Jesus is saying it like this. Unless you see... You will not believe. You have little faith. Right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Just just recognize that the tonality with which you read the statement will determine in many ways what you sense Jesus saying. Because maybe he's saying, you have little faith. Come on. Unless you see, you won't believe. Or maybe he's just diagnosing the place that this man is at in his faith journey. Here's where you're at. You won't see, or you won't believe unless you see. And maybe it's just a statement of fact. I think that's more of what Jesus is doing here. And I think he's saying, hey, um, official, man, um, father whose son is sick, here's where you're at in the journey of faith. You're at what we're going to call today level one, where you trust Jesus's works. Where you trust Jesus's works. And that's not a bad place to be. I would suggest that it's a dangerous place to stay, but it's not a bad place to start. There are issues with this level of faith. Listen to the way that um, commentator and author Leslie Newbegin put it. He said this, a belief which requires signs and wonders is one that lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. Did you catch what he said? So when we say back to God, um, I'll believe if, really, 
we are setting forth the conditions of which, that which need to be met in order for us to say back to Jesus, I believe you. I believe in you. If you do this, then I will believe in you. And listen, listen, we see all throughout scripture, people who see and then believe. We see a man healed in John chapter nine, blind, and he sees and he believes in Jesus. We see people who drink wine that at one point was water and they believe. We see people sitting on a hillside, a few loaves of bread and a few fish feed multitudes and they believe. We see Peter who pulls a great hole of fish in from the lake and he believes. We see people all throughout scripture who see and then believe. And it's part of the heart of our God to say, I see what pains you, I see what hurts you, and I'm gonna step in with my powerful provisional hand and I am going to move on your behalf. We see that all throughout scripture. But it's an elementary level of faith to say back to God, unless you move in this situation, I will not believe. And my guess is you've played this bargaining game with God at some point in life. Anyone want to say, played that? God, if you heal this person, I'll believe. This person that I love, that we've been praying for, you heal them, then I will believe. You come through with this job, then I will believe. If the Padres can just get back to 500, then, <laughs> then I will believe. I mean, we play this game, don't we? Maybe not with the Padres, but we play this game with God. It's conditional and it has a hint of blackmail attached to it. I've got to see your hand move in this specific way or else I will withhold my belief from you. And what we're going to see is that that's an okay place to start the journey of faith, but it is a dangerous place to leave it. And it's certainly no place to end it. Jesus is going to call this man and he's going to call us to something more. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. So, so here's a plan. You're coming with me. We're walking this 25 miles so that we can get back to my house and you can lay your hands on my son or do whatever you're going to do and heal him and heal him. And I love that we start to see this official soften a little bit in the way that he addresses Jesus, right? Like, like all of his credentials pale in comparison to what Jesus is able to do. He addresses him as sir, sir. And Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Time out, time out. This wasn't the plan. The plan was you come with me, you lay your hands on him and then he lives. And so this man is immediately placed at this crossroads of faith. Will he only believe what he sees or will he believe what Jesus says? Will he go blindly these 25 miles walking home or will he say back to Jesus, that's a good idea, Jesus. And I see where you're going with that. But what I was thinking was maybe we could go together because the road's scary and I just want you to be by my side, right? And this requires him to leave this spot without Jesus by his side, launches him into what we might call liminal space, where he's in between 
The man, say it with me, church, believed, believed. This is a different kind of belief than you will only believe if you see. The man believed the word Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his journey. The man believed the word, and he acted on it. He wasn't just a hearer of the word, he was a doer of the word. He immediately steps into the unknown. He steps into this, what we might call leveling up in his belief, in his trust. And he doesn't just trust Jesus' works, he trusts Jesus' words. He trusts what Jesus has said. But try to put yourself, I mean, we know the, probably you know the way that the story ends. If you don't know, you could read in the next few seconds down and see what happens. Spoiler alert, his son is healed, okay? And we know how it ends, but this guy didn't. So he's walking down the mountain without Jesus. He's walking down the mountain with a promise, but no answer. See, in in our world, we have a, a proverb and it goes like this, seeing is believing. And that's essentially where this man starts. But the journey that Jesus wants this man to go on and the journey that Jesus is inviting each of us to go on is a journey with him where where believing results in in seeing. We step in and we say yes to Jesus and we get to see his hand move and his hand work. Even when we don't see, we can say back to him, I believe your word. I believe your word. Love the way that Jesus said it to his disciples. Have you believed because you've seen me? Like Thomas, is that that why you believe? Fair enough, Jesus says. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's this man. He's walking away, hasn't yet seen, and yet he believes. And I think that allows us to locate ourselves in our journey of faith so much of the time. We live in that same spot. We've got a word, we've got a promise, but we haven't yet seen the full provision, right? So so God promises that he will work all things together for the good of those who are loved by God and who have been called according to his purpose. All things. How many of you believe it's true? I do. How many of you have seen all things? All things. There's still some things that are outstanding in my life. Amen? But I have a conviction because he spoke the word. And I'm living in between the promise and the provision, but I'm convinced that he's good. And I'm convinced that he's true. Um, Scripture says that Jesus will one day redeem all things, that he will make all things new. We live in between the promise and the provision. The Scriptures say that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, or principalities, or anything else in all of creation can separate us from his love. We live in between the promise given and the provision of that that we will know throughout all eternity. I think in so many ways we live in the exact spot this guy was in when he walked away from Jesus toward his family with a ton of questions and a ton of unknowns and a ton of I don't get this, but a word, but a word. And he's immediately launched into a season of waiting, of waiting. I hate waiting. Anybody with me? I just hate, I hate it. 
I hate waiting on the phone. I hate waiting in line. I hate waiting for food. Um, the last few weeks, I don't know about you, but I've just been waiting for it to get sunny and warm. And every morning I wake up and I click my weather app and I refresh it like 10 times, 60s still, please Jesus. And then it gets into the 80s and mid 80s and we're like, when's it gonna cool down, right? Like we just, we're waiting on the weather and it's hard, right? But when you're waiting on God, when you're waiting on God to come through, when you're waiting on healing, when you're waiting on restoration, when you're waiting on that relationship to get mended, when you're waiting on God to show his mighty hand, waiting is really, really hard. And it can be so easy to step into that season of waiting and then grasp to try to manipulate and to try to control the situation because waiting is really, really hard. It's really, really hard. I love the way that um, author and pastor Jeffrey Tacklin put it when he said, faith takes deep work. It costs us our comfort. It pushes us toward vulnerability, which are both things that this man did, stepped into as he started to walk home. It requires us to look honestly into our hearts and to see our fragility and weakness. This requires an enormous amount of trust, loss of control, vulnerability, honesty with our weakness. This is the journey of ever growing faith. And friends, God does some of his best work in us as we wait on him, as we wait on him. And I think the question in the waiting is the same question. We get to ask God the same question that this official got to ask God as he's walking back toward his home. Do we trust Jesus enough to allow him to operate however he chooses? Do we trust him enough to do things on his terms rather than on our terms? Do we trust him enough to believe his word and to step out in faith believing that what he said is true? Because sometimes, I don't, I don't get it, you guys, but sometimes Jesus doesn't do a good job of following my agenda. Anybody with me? <laughs> seems as though he's got a mind of his own. It seems as though he's got a plan of his own. And I say that tongue in cheek because he does. And this father is willing to, as hard as it is, he's willing to align with Jesus's plan and ditch his own. His own plan was we go together. Jesus's plan is you go and I'll take care of it. And he lets go. Will you? The story goes on. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So evidently, his servants leave his house, run or go from Capernaum up to Cana to tell him, you're never going to believe this. Your son is recovering. So he asked them the hour he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday... At the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, anytime John gives us these details that, like he does in this text, it, it's really important for us to slow down long enough to ask, A, why is he telling us that? And what are the pieces that we get to put together? So let me just try to unpack the storyline as best I can understand it. Uh, the seventh hour is 1 p.m. Jesus tells this official at 1 p.m., your son is going to be fine. It's a 25-mile walk from his 
house to where Jesus was. Now, that's a long day, but it's certainly a day's walk for people who lived back in the first century and their main mode of transportation was walking. And maybe this official had a horse. We're not exactly sure, but he certainly could have gotten home in the time that Jesus said to him, your son will be fine. And when his servants encounter him on the trail the next day, which begs the question, why did it take him so long to get home? Like, it's almost frantic when he gets there. He rushes to Jesus. Jesus, 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 um, I'm an official. See the stripes? Like, um, you need to come with me. My son's sick. We need you immediately back in Capernaum. And then he leaves. And it's as though he just throws it into cruise control. Just taking it one step at a time. I mean, maybe, maybe he was afraid to face his wife coming back into town without Jesus by his side, right? Like, <laughs> babe, I know, I know I told you I'd come back with him, but he spoke a word. It's going to be all good. I don't, I, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Or, or maybe, or maybe the frantic need that drove him to Jesus was, was released. Maybe the weight that he was carrying as a father who loved his son and wanted to see his son made well. Maybe the faith that he had in the word Jesus spoke, maybe that belief that we just read about actually did something to the way that he walked in real life. Maybe he believed that Jesus would be good on his word and so he didn't feel like he needed to take things into his own hands and run down the mountain as quick as he could and get to his family as quick as he could. Maybe he just got the freedom to walk in faith. I love the way that Paul will write it to the church in Philippi and, and he will say this. He will say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So like just take all that weight you're carrying, take all those questions that you have, take that latent doubt, take those, all, all the frustration and the pain and just like bring it to him. And then there's a promise that's given, a word that's spoken. And the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Maybe it just changes the way that you walk. And you're not able to explain it. It, goes, it transcends, it goes beyond understanding. But you're just able to receive an inner calm that we might call peace that allows us to walk and live in this world in a different way. I think that's why he walks slower. But one of the things I'm captivated by in this passage is that we learn that Jesus doesn't have to be physically present to heal physically. He doesn't have to be physically present to heal physically. And I love that as somebody who lives in between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus, when he's not present physically on this earth in bodily form, we can still trust that he has the ability to heal physically. He didn't need to be there present physically then, and he doesn't need to be there here present physically now in order to heal physically. You don't have to be able to touch Jesus for him to be able to touch you. That's one of the things that this whole village is going to learn as they're on this journey together of faith. It says the father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will 
live. It was that hour that his son started to get better. And he himself, what? Believed. Believed. Third time. Third time. But this isn't, you'll only believe if you see. And this isn't, I've given a word, put your anchor of your soul into that word. This is a little bit different. He believed and his household believed with him. He levels up once again. It's not just your works and it's not just your words. It's Jesus, I trust your character. I think the journey is from believing, that Jesus, believing in Jesus because of his works to believing in Jesus' words to believing that Jesus is the word. The word made flesh. And I, I, it's Father's Day, so I just have to point out the fact that this man's household believes because of the way that he believed in Jesus. Now, certainly their faith had to be their own. Everybody's faith has to be their own. But the overflowing ripple effects of this dad's faith in the life of his family cannot be underestimated. And I'll just say to all the fathers out there that your life of faith and its impact in your family cannot be underestimated. God has called you to lead and to love and to show the way. And in so many ways, whether you want them to or not, your family will take their cue from you. It happened in this passage. It happens in households all across the world. It's just the way that God designed it. And when this man says, Jesus, I trust your character. I trust that you are the word. The rest of his family goes, we trust that too. We trust that too. And I just had to think that maybe the story isn't ultimately about the healing of the official son. Like maybe it's about the healing of the official soul. Maybe it's about what God wanted to do in him, in addition to what God wanted to do in the life of his family. See, God will use power and he will use persuasion and he will use promises, but all of those things are designed to cause us to trust in his person to trust that he is who he says he is and will do what he has said he will do. Not just to seek his hand, but also to seek his face. Not to look to Jesus just to hook us up, but to look to Jesus to be the bedrock of our life. When we have a word, we can believe it and we can sink our anchor of our soul into it. But when we step into the unknown and we don't have any word and we don't know where to go, we can trust his character because he is who he says he is. And our faith is based on a person, not on a product. It's based on his character, not on his gifts. It's based on his heart, not just on his hand. And there's something beautiful that's rising to the surface in this passage. It's that you can trust Jesus's character and you can have faith in him even when he says no. We believe who he says he is. Or maybe, maybe you'd write it down like this. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we can say yes to him, even if he says no to us. Even if he says no to us. This, John tells us, was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. 
Now remember, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about the first sign, and the first sign was the turning of water into wine. John uses these signs to sort of be an organizing way that he organizes the narrative of his gospel. There will eventually be seven signs that we see by the end of the gospel of John. This is sign number two, but I want to remind you that a sign isn't ultimately about the thing that happens, it's about the thing that it points to. That's how signs work. Signs aren't about the sign. They're about what the sign points to. Every time I drive from our house or church up um, Escondido Boulevard, I drive north, we pass one of the most glorious signs ever created. It's a sign that says Peterson's Donuts. (laughs) Peterson's Donuts. And here's the deal, here's the deal. This is my son when he's a lot younger. This is one of my favorite pictures I ever took of him. That's how I feel when I'm standing in line too, buddy. Like, yes, yes. And listen, he's not screaming because of the sign. He's screaming because of the the donut. He's screaming because of what the sign points to. And John tells us what happened with this boy and with this official, it was a sign. So my question is, what's it a sign pointing to? What's it a sign pointing to? Well, it's a sign pointing to the fact that temporal healing is ultimately a picture of eternal restoration that Jesus will one day bring. That's what it's pointing to. See, anytime Jesus heals our temporal bodies, it's a foretaste of the day that he will heal us one day completely, fully, and eternally. Temporal healing is a sign pointing to eternal restoration. See, this boy eventually died. Not from this illness, but probably something else eventually. Maybe as he was really, really old and he looked back on his life and he went, God, I can't believe you did that for me then. But eventually he took his last breath. But the sign points to a day where we will never die again. The sign points to a day where Jesus will one day call your name and you will rise. The sign points to a day when the trumpet will sound, where the dead will be raised imperishable, where we will be changed, and then the saying will come to pass, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And this sign was pointing towards that day that we have his word will be true. Amen? Amen. As we were meeting with our writing team to talk about devotions that go along with this passage, my friend Jonathan Duncan, after we got down talking about this idea of a sign, my friend Jonathan Duncan just looked across the table and he paused and he said, I can't wait for that day. Neither can I, neither can I. I believe that his word is true. But more than that, I believe that his character is trustworthy, that he is who he says he is, that he has been faithful to every generation and that he will not stop now. Amen? Amen. So he's worthy of your trust, friends. He's worthy of your trust, not just to say, like, if I see, I'll believe. If that's where where you're at today, that's okay. But would you just admit that to Jesus? This is where I'm at. But maybe you would follow that with, it's not where I want to stay. It's not where I want to stay. 
Maybe today you're at the place where you're going, if, if Jesus, you, you've said it, and I'm going to sink the anchor of my soul into it. I believe your words. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And maybe today you're saying, even in the confusion, even when I don't have a specific word, I know your heart, and I trust your heart. That's the journey. The pilgrim's progress that Jesus is inviting all of us to follow him in. And my prayer for you today is that you and I would both level up. Let's pray. So Lord, this ever-evolving, ever-changing journey that we call faith, we are so grateful that we are not alone in that journey, that we have each other, that your spirit lives inside of us to lead us and to guide us. And that you're constantly working to invite us into more, to invite us deeper, further up and further in. And we just want to say back to you, we want that journey, Lord. We want that journey. So we say yes to you today. Not just a decision to have faith, but to go on the journey with you of deepening our faith, of growing, of changing, and more fully submitting to your love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.